Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today's Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So the coronavirus seven-day run-it-rolling average number appears basically to be frozen somewhere around 11,500 new cases a day. And as we keep saying, the magic number, according to Fauci, was the cases have to drop below 10,000 a day. I would have thought, given the trajectory over the course of June, that we would have hit that already. We're not hitting it. Maybe we'll hit it next week. Um. And of course, the Fourth of July is coming, which was supposed to be this, you know, celebration of our our liberation. There is an incredibly weird poll out from Gallup, very disturbing, very disturbing poll that says that asks people if the pandemic is over or not, and then breaks that down uh, in partisan numbers. And the poll asked. Is the pandemic over? Um, and 96% of Democrats say it is not. And 57% of Republicans say the pandemic is over. Um, I don't know what to make of this, except that uh, the identitarian nature of how you think about COVID now I think tilts very, very strongly in the direction of the Democrats and not the Republicans, who we have heard for, we have heard for a year, it's Republicans who are politicizing the coronavirus. But if you have almost unanimous Democratic sentiment that says that the virus, uh, that, the, that the pandemic is not over on one side, that means that there is almost total agreement that you cannot say that it's over in one party. What's interesting about that, though, is while it's obviously the the numbers are extremely partisan, um, in political terms, it's not exactly political in that you would think if it were purely political, Democrats would be eager to say it's over now because our guy is in office and he saved us. So it's not right. about that. It's not about winning. It, it has much more to do with um, sort of how they actually look at the crisis. Exactly. So, but what, what it does suggest is not sort of just simply a partisan who's my guy and who's not my guy. We have here an expression of a worldview that is coming out by this unbelievable unanimity among Democrats that is much more focused than the worldview that is reflected by the Republicans. Hey, the pandemic is over. That that number, the Republican number that says the pandemic is over is 57 to 43. Okay. So mo- Republicans are inclined to say that the pandemic is over. Democrats, you cannot be a Democrat in the United States basically and think that the pandemic is over. I mean, we shouldn't discount the extent to which an ideology that has dedicated itself overall to safety 
above any and every other consideration, legal, social, moral, what have you, over the last decade and a half, that that's manifesting in this poll. I wouldn't dismiss that offhand. However, there are aspects of this poll that we also shouldn't dismiss, like, for example, the fact that 62% of people say their lives are somewhat back to normal or maybe wholly back to normal, and 54% say their lives are not disrupted now. I'm in more significant majorities that suggest that it's not just Republicans saying they're back to normal. Uh, lead their lives as normal, for example, in this poll, as opposed to stay at home as much as possible, which was in April, you know, favored people staying home entirely. Now, to the tune of 65 to 35, favor going out and living your life as much as you possibly can. So while people are saying this, Democrats are saying this as an expression of political fealty, they may not necessarily be living their values, as it were. But I, yeah, that's a good point, because I think a lot of the, the, the 96% number, which is shocking, might also be an expression of the idea, not just that, you know, that the safetyism of the last decade, as you said, Noah, but an understanding or a, or a compulsion to believe that the state is the is the entity responsible for keeping everyone safe, that, that it's not the individual responsibility and individual behavior of people in families and communities doing what they should. It's if something goes wrong, someone in, in the in the federal government needs to fix it for us. We have to be taken care of by the state. And that mindset, I think, is obviously as a conservative, I think it's a very pernicious mindset. But the but for a lot of people who might have mildly had that inclination before the pandemic, they are clinging to that. Imp- and, and that actually is encouraged by this administration. That's why they're holding off till July 4th for their big fireworks celebration. That's why they needed to spend trillions and trillions of dollars. So I wonder if that plays into it as well in terms of why they would they would still report to a pollster that they don't feel that things are, are but, over. But don't you think that it's like an ex- it's like saying, do you believe in good things and are opposed to bad things. It is as though you are saying to Democrats uh, or Democrats are saying, saying the pandemic is not over is like saying, you know, people should be good. Like that there is some, yeah, yeah, this unanimity thing is very, they may be living however they're living, but that they are not supposed to say that the pandemic is over, even if they're living like the pandemic is pretty much over. Or, that's one theory. Here's another one. You're talking about people who don't distrust the media. They like the media. The media are their friends. They like Stephen Colbert. You know, they like MSNB. They like the New York Times. And you would not get a sense from the mainstream media that the pandemic is over. It's still the third or fourth top story every day, you know, things uh, come in, you know, the Surfside condo collapse happens, the heat wave in the, in, in the Pacific Northwest happens. All of that is very real and very focused. And those are news events, but it is the ongoing story of the mainstream media where we are, the Delta variant, are we this, da, 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 is climate change, does this mean we're going to have more pandemics and so if you're inclined to think that you're being told the truth or that you're not being sold an agenda or that you're not generally distrustful, you maybe you'll just say, yeah, the pandemic's not over. I mean, I can tell from the, everything that I consume that I trust. Okay, so um, Noah, no, can I just add to that? Because Noah sent us a, a great story on our little uh, commentary text thread uh, last night, uh, which had the most wonderful, but I think uh, is going to become ubiquitous oxymoron ever. And it, ta- it was talking about climate change and, and the warming planet. And 
I think it was a governor, one of the one of the Pacific. Jay Inslee, Jay Inslee of Washington. He de- yeah. yeah, he declared it, that this is a permanent emergency. So get used to seeing that oxymoronic phrase, you know, deployed whenever some uh, someone with power wants to cling to it and use it uh, in whatever ways they want. But I think uh, I think that's to your point, right? Permanent emergency actually is a wonderful situation if you're someone who wields power. Because you have all kinds of, of uh, additional things you can do without any sort of without being held responsible to your voters because it's an emergency. And John, I, I think to your um, to your point about it's about sort of saying you know um, sort of good things as as opposed to bad things. There's it's connected to this idea that um, I would read about as as the as the numbers were getting better on the infections and the de- and the death rates in this country. Um, the sort of the, the pushback from the media about why you couldn't say the pandemic was over. The line that jumped out at me was the pandemic will only be over when we stop caring about the victims. So there's this idea that to right. say the pandemic is over, um, you will um, sort of uh, lose your humanity. It means you no longer care. Um, and I think to contradict my first point a little bit about this not being strictly political it is in the sense that also to say the pandemic over, it, to say the pandemic is over, is kind of a way of saying we can move on from the Trump horrors a little bit um, and we can put that in the rearview mirror and they don't want to do that. Right. But I mean, I think Noah's point is is well taken that um, this isn't now about the Trump horrors. It's about the Biden successes. And you would think they might want to embrace the Biden successes. But since Biden himself has not fully embraced the Biden successes and the media have not embraced the Biden successes yet fully for whatever reason, they are not, uh, they are not doing so now. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is that the pandemic is over for all intents and purposes. But, but I think you're right that people who need Biden to say that it's over there's a weird like echo chamber weird effect here, which is that the that this suggests that Democrats need Biden or Fauci to say the pandemic is over. And they may be unwilling to say it if the public and Democrats are are saying that it's not over. That it may be too risky. So there'll be this kind of bizarre after you Alphonse, no after you Gaston dance that will lead us exactly nowhere and uh as people are walking around in 200 degree heat in the pacific northwest they'll still have masks on their face both to suggest their virtue and because they apparently genuinely and legitimately believe that even if they're vaccinated and even if they're this and even if they're that there could be a breakthrough infection there could be long covid there could be this and they're and they're going to keep going on like that if they go outside, which of course in the 116 degree well, heat, I mean, you really don't want to that much. There's true, fair enough. There's, there's, I mean, there's this sen- very distasteful sentiment that you sometimes hear expressed by extremely online progressives, where they sort of miss lockdown, um, and you, we should all be very resistant towards that, and I'm resistant towards that. But man, the period in which Republicans inherited the earth was kind of lovely. You could get a haircut real easy. No wait for the table at the local restaurant. It was, it had its moments and those are gone, long gone. So, you know, I'm sorry. Everybody's back to normal. Fair enough. 
Um, anyway, I just think it's a sort of an interesting uh, phenomenon that we, I mean, I think there was also the fact that it turns out that this is not, we, you would have thought, okay, great, take off your masks, right? I mean, basically, uh, Gavin Newsom and, and Andrew Cuomo and others said, you can take off your masks now. And it turns out if you spend a year telling people they need to keep their masks on, it's harder for them to take their masks off than you realize. That's what's interesting. Like you would think, it's like, oh my God, thank God, you know, here here I go. No, because people's entire way of looking at the world, or a lot of people's way of looking at the world shifted. Uh, no, this kind of insistence, this kind of um, imposition had never really been attempted before. And and it turns out, and this is a frightening thing about, you know, I don't know, the uh, extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds, that it's not just that crowds go crazy, but maybe it's also that crowds uh, are much more um, likely to, you know, they they get convinced of something and they can't shake it. They can't shake it yet. They don't feel safe with the mask off. That's why Biden has to get up and say the pandemic is over. You can take your mask off. It's why if Tony Blinken is meeting uh, Ruby Rivlin, the outgoing Israeli president, the two of them shouldn't be having their masks on. Well, I was I was going to say that, okay. you know, one of the ways that the administration has been sending extremely mixed signals about vaccination, about the pandemic, for whatever reason, is the constant masking of people who we all know to be fully vaccinated and certainly safe from from spreading or, or any sort of contagion. And it's constant and it's done for all of the symbolic public events. And it's weird, but it's not consistent. So you'll see them at a party like in when the UK visit. You know, they're all masked up for the G7 stuff. But then there's like a tea party with the Queen later. Nobody has a mask on. So which is it? And I think that that's a confusing well, you know, public the queen, image. Is, the queen is only 93, so there's no reason to wear a mask <laughs> around her. The Queen right? is awesome. So like, I, I, know, I mean, she, she can do whatever she, she wants. It's her party. But I, think I, I totally agree. I'm just <laughs> saying that if there was anybody on Earth that you would want to be masked around for like extra special protection, exactly. it would be the 93-year-old monarch of Great Britain. But okay, that's fine. Okay, we can move on from this. I just wanted to note this because I was struck by the oddity and severity of this uh, of the of, of the the difference in these numbers, and uh, they speak to a cultural chasm. They really do speak to at least intellectually, ideologically, or in terms of emotional preference. Even if people are behaving much more normally than they than they than they used to um with that let me talk to you about our new advertiser we met yesterday aura because you know the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade but security tools have mostly stayed the same and aura is the solution to that it provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts finances devices and more all in one easy to use app Look, between your photos, finances, devices, and connections, your world is more online than ever. You may have security systems in place for real life, but your online life may not be as secure, and Aura can sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. It provides digital security protection, all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, 
like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name or is easy to set up all plans come with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced us-based customer support that's got your back or is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription with an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access in three free months. When you visit aura.com slash commentary, go to aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else and three months for free for a limited time. That's aura.com slash commentary. A lot of interesting stuff has been going on uh, in and around Iran and with the United States and Israel and Iran's own election system. We have a new president of Iran who is a mass murderer, um, apparently directly responsible for the killings of thousands of uh, regime opponents inside the country through extrajudicial means. Um, uh, he is a, a hardliner uh, sort of like uh, Ahmadinejad, but Ahmadinejad was more of a kind of um, oddly enough weird, airy, intellectual, prone to flights of millinery and fancy. And this guy is a thug and a killer and a hardliner in the classic power sense, uh, Raisi. And and so uh, we find ourselves dealing with this new semi leader just as we're trying to return somehow to the to the Iran deal. And he's testing us, or somebody's decided to test us because Noah, what's what's been what's been going on in the skies? Well and it significantly precedes uh, the election, quote unquote, of uh this hardliner as president. Um there's been increasingly sophisticated drone attacks mounted by Shiite militias on U.S. positions inside Iraq, emanating from both inside Iraq and from inside Syria. There are about 900 American troops still in Deir ez-Zor around this oil field that is particularly strategically valuable when it was in ISIS's hands. It was the key um, uh, way in which ISIS extracted concessions from Assad, for example. So it's very strategically valuable. And we still have some troops there. And I think there's something like 2,500 troops in Iraq, something around those lines. And there's a timetable for withdrawal, but we're, it's, we're not there yet. Um, so, yeah, these attacks have been ongoing for quite some time since April. They started uh, gaining speed. Tempo has been increasing in May. And um, this is not the first time Joe Biden issued a strike. He issued a strike order on Monday night. Um, he had done so earlier in February, mostly in, in Iraq, not in Syria. This is in Syria and Iraq. Um, and it was a retaliatory response uh, in order, according to uh, Tony Blinken, to, quote, deter and degrade, unquote, the ability of these militias to to mount these attacks. So I'm I'm tempted to say that this is just this new regime trying to test us, seek its parameters, what have you. But these have been ongoing for some time. Uh, and I don't detect any appreciable increase in tempo from May to today. Uh, so enough. it just seems to be a basic strategy on the part of the Islamic Republic to use its proxies to test test its parameters of action. And predictably, the debate inside the United States over these strikes has been uh, very parochial um, and not undeservedly. You know, where is the legal authority 
for these strikes? Where is the legal authority for U.S. positions in Syria, which is on much more shaky ground? Uh, and we should just get out. You know, these, this is the, the the sentiment that prevails on on political venues with, uh, you know, people who are less interested in grand strategic purposes. Easiest way to protect American troops is just to get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. And that's what Joe Biden is pursuing in Afghanistan. And it's what they want him to pursue in Iraq. And he's trying his hardest to do that. Um, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean failing to see to American interests and American interests in these parts of the world are permanent, whether we see to them or not. And Joe Biden is now the fourth consecutive American president who campaigned on withdrawing from these um, conflicts. You could call them conflicts, so they're very low boil, um, more like policing actions or simply advisory deployments. Um, and he has, as president, been forced to see to those interests, been forced to see to the security of American troops and the objectives that they're seeking to preserve. Uh, that doesn't seem to be telling anyone ever anything. Nobody seems to be reaching what I think is the in inevitable conclusion from that process, which is that this is not cynical politics, um, which is what the opponents of American deployments always say, that this is some sort of a cynical political game designed to achieve uh, advance, seek advantage and to achieve advantage domestically. Um, it seems much more strategic, grand strategic, in my view. Um, but that side of the argument doesn't seem to be winning any converts. Uh, there's a story in the New York Times today by David Sanger who points out that, uh, oddly enough, in the New York Times, but it's a pretty remarkable story, that um, the conditions that prevailed uh, before the signing of the uh, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, are no longer present because, A, Iran <clears throat> has apparently enriched a lot more uranium, uh, number one, and number two, they they now have offensive capabilities that they did not have in 2015 <clears throat> that sort of half the measure of which has to be taken uh the idea that you can separate out uh the uh military aspects of the nuclear program from the larger geostrategic purpose of iran's regime efforts which are to dominate uh the region um uh they have to take some measure of these drone capabilities, which are new, did not exist in 2015, and all the rest, at, while they are trying somehow to coax Iran back to the table to make a deal. And uh, what this suggests not only is that the deal was rotten to begin with, because obviously Iran wasn't slowing itself down, and it, Sanger literally says that the negotiators of the Biden team recognizes that uh, they needed to, uh, that the deal should have been lengthened. That is that the the time frame needed should have been extended further than the supposed 10 to 12 years that Iran was agreeing not to deploy a nuclear weapon. After which, if you remember the terms of the deal, Iran was then fully legally in international law terms within its rights to have nuclear weaponry that was the that was the trade-off in the deal we they would not do it for 10 12 years and then then they would not be in violation of any international understanding if they then deployed nuclear weapons and according to the thinking now of the biden people that time frame was too short well, okay, if that time frame was too short, then they're retroactively saying the deal was as bad as everybody who was against it said it was. Yeah, because, because we, on that. Yeah, well, who campaigned on that? 
the Biden campaign. They, Joe Biden oh. campaigned on the notion that we can't just go back to the old Iran deal. Well, we, we can fix it. Deal. Right, we can fix it. But he didn't say what and he didn't say how. And now they're actually enumerating the fact that the deal's timeline was too short. Well, if the deal's timeline is too short, then the deal shouldn't have been struck in the first place. That was what we all said is like, oh, really? So you're going to give them if even if they abide by it, you're going to give them 10 years and then they're going to have a nuclear weapon. That's like 2025, like 2026. This was was a big deal when it happened, because if you remember, um, John Kerry kept came under a lot of pressure over the over the the sunsetting of the deal. And he kept trying to say, no, it's not. We're not talking about, you know, some quick way for them to, to, to ramp back up. It's going to be longer. But but it was one of those things where um, uh, Tehran just kept pushing the, the administration saying no deal, no deal, no deal until until the time frame got ever shorter. But well, I'm going to submit okay. Go ahead. a theory here that even to talk about Iranian provocations in the region within the context of the JCPOA is chauvinistic. It, it places us at the center of the conversation in Iran orbits around us. And I don't think that explains Iranian behavior. It certainly doesn't explain Shiite militia deployments in Iraq and what they're trying to do politically in Baghdad. It doesn't explain Hezbollah in Lebanon. It doesn't explain the seizure of ships in the, in the Strait of Hormuz. It doesn't explain their support for the Houthi, Houthi militias in Yemen. It doesn't explain the attack on the Saudi oil petroleum processing facility in 2019. All that is explained by more regional hegemonic impulses um, that require us to withdraw from the region. That's that's the grand objective in Tehran. Um, the uh, well, you have to say a nuclear weapon objective. is an insurance policy there, but the, but the strategic objective is okay. regional hegemony. Right. The grand objective is not related to us. That's the odd part. The grand objective is related to the region. We got involved in part... The fear here, which is why people started, like my father, started advocating for you know, uh, U.S. strikes on Iran to Haitian regime regime change. The fear here in the 2000s wasn't that Iran, just with Iran, would get a nuclear bomb and then threaten Israel. It was that there would be a nuclear arms race in the larger Middle East if Iran succeeded in its nuclear ambitions, that the Saudis would, you know, would, would, would do whatever they could to get a nuke, and that Egypt would do whatever it could to get a nuke, and suddenly you would have four countries within, you know, 3,000, you know, 2,500 miles of each other with nuclear weapons, all in some bizarre, you know, version of, you know, one of those fights in the Hong Kong movies where they're all lying, four people are lying down on the ground, ever, all of them pointing guns at each other's heads, two guns in each hand. And so we, the, the, the initial notion of doing something to contain Iran's nuclear ambitions was not about us. It was about making sure that the world's supply of, of, of oil wasn't threatened by this one hegemonic hunger. And, and we, but we cannot, and maybe you're, no, you're blaming me and maybe I am responsible. Maybe I have made the same mistake here, but we are not the, the issue here. Like we're only the issue here because we're walking around saying, Oh, come on, let's get back in the deal. Like, and, and Biden says to, Rivlin yesterday, outgoing Israeli president, you know, Iran's not getting a nuclear weapon on my watch. But if Iran wants to get a nuclear weapon on his watch, 
Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon on his watch unless the Israelis and we we stop it in much more direct. I mean, the Israelis are clearly doing everything they can to make sure Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon. You know, this incredible sabotage. Every week there's another unexplained explosion or, you know, you know, something happens at some Israeli, new, uh, some Iranian nuclear site, like every week. And that's probably them, though maybe it's us. But we would have to be get much more involved than a, than a, than a nice practical negotiation well, to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, right. Well, that's what's so frustrating about, about following what the Biden administration is doing and signaling and saying with regard to Iran. They are still doing old fashioned arms control diplomacy at a, at a geopolitical moment where that everyone knows that's not going to work, particularly with this incoming cleric. They also do this with their rhetoric about human rights, right? So if, if they really are going to revive, you know, uh, lifting sanctions, sending money to Iran again, you know, killing the JCPO or going back into the JCPOA, you know, they're going to basically be doing business with a leader whom our own Treasury Department, you know, sanctioned a couple of years ago for human rights violations, for the extrajudicial, uh, overseeing extrajudicial killings, like you said earlier, John. So the, the, the hypocrisy and, and the geopolitical idiocy of the strategy is pretty clear, even to someone like me who doesn't follow foreign policy as closely as you guys do. But it's really weird. It's, it's really this one of those moments where Biden is doing the Biden thing that Biden's always done for 40 years. And it's not working. But nobody wants to say so, particularly in the media. Well, I think what happens is they commit themselves to these, you know, uh, political campaigns and and parties and everything commit themselves to these notions that something gravely offensive has happened to their wonderful achievements, right? Like the JCPOA, and they're not going to stand for it. So when they get back in power, we're we'll right back in there and we'll show them, you know, they thought they could, well, we're going to uh, like that. And uh, people sort of forget that though, though Trump said the JCPOA was a bad deal, it was a terrible deal, he didn't like the deal, it was terrible he didn't immediately abrogate it upon taking office or anything like that. It was when the Israelis seized in one of the great intelligence ops in human history, seized this colossal cache of paperwork, sort of like the Pentagon Papers of Iran, like the sort of the, the history of the Iranian nuclear program, and showed... And we don't really know what it showed, but what we do know is apparently it showed that everything that they said when they were negotiating for the JCPOA was a lie. What they claimed about their program was a lie. What they claimed about when it had started, what they claimed about what they had developed, when it talked about the speed uh, of their uh, centrifuges and all of that, that they had just lied in for three years in these negotiations. And it was at that point that you know, Trump said, let's pull the trigger and get get the hell out of this deal. It wasn't just because he hates Obama and said it was a lousy deal. There was actually an objective correlative that led to our pulling out of the JCPOA. And because they are religiously committed to the notion that the JCPOA was a, was a wonderful success and that Trump was, you know, creating new conditions for hostility in the world, they somehow didn't reckon with the the fact that we're dealing with with a, with a regime that is that that would not negotiate in good faith, even if, as we now know, it, it wasn't. And much like the infrastructure negotiations, uh, where we had you know Joe Biden had this slip up, and then they're like, "Oh, you guys always knew 
that it was a two-track deal and there was going to be reconciliation for all the goodies. You always knew that. So don't act like you didn't know it. All of a sudden, this cash was revealed and everybody in the press said, oh, you always knew Iran was trying to build a nuclear weapon. Don't act like this was all peaceful energy purposes. You knew they were lying. We all knew they were lying. Let's be let's be adults here on this matter. It says a lot more about you than it does about me. If you were always under the impression that this was all uh, spin and nonsense and we should all be more cynical about this sort of thing, why weren't you more cynical about this sort of thing? Well, I mean, you it's every opportunity. Of, it's one of the weirdnesses of uh of 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 the of democratic uh let's say establishment democratic foreign policy that it has remained in the thrall of the idea that grand negotiations over uh arms control particularly in relation to nuclear weapons is the be all and is the ultimate be all and end all of foreign policy when uh, the great the greatest events of the second half of the 20th century meaning the you know pretty much the collapse of the of the Soviet Union and the end of the of the Iron Curtain and all this happened despite arms control <laughs> negotiations, not because of them. You know, it, uh, it, the whole point of this was that we needed to deal with this regime and uh, protect ourselves, uh, let them have some things and we'd have others and all of that. And it was in, in the end our technological superiority that drove them. It was our actual absolute technical superiority that meant that we were only negotiating with ourselves when we were negotiating over arms control and nuclear arms control, we weren't negotiating with them. We were negotiating with ourselves since our capabilities were vastly more advanced than theirs. And we were holding ourselves back instead of like doubling down to make them collapse even faster because they couldn't afford to keep up with us. 25 years later, 25 years later, Barack Obama is like kneeling at the altar of arms control. You know, I'm not even talking ideologically here. Like, what I just said is kind of patent historical fact. Like, arms control was an incidental side issue when it came to what happened in the in the grand game between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, but it's so fetishized because of the notion that negotiation is better than war and jaw jaws, but, you know talk at a table and this is where it's sort of like you know having a practicum or you know having a session at the council on foreign relations where you really come to some understanding uh, across the table or something like that and that is not what is going on you know iran has no reason to go back into the jcpoa whatsoever it's made that clear uh the only way we get them back they only went into jcpoa in the first place because we we released some amount of money somewhere between 50 and 150 billion dollars we don't really know really how much it was that basically paid for them agreeing to go into this deal um and we're not going to do that again they don't have assets that we can unfreeze and give to them really and so uh you know they're not there's not going to be another iran deal so i guess they have to play this kabuki game and go on with it for like another year until they walk away from the table saying we did everything we could and in all good conscience you know but we just couldn't get to we, we but, couldn't to yes and then there has to be an iran policy um that doesn't involve a deal and that's going to be a whole new universe right because then, then where are we at? We're at we're 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 talking about Iran with um, capabilities that we haven't seen uh, in their hands before, right? 
I mean, we, I mean, this is the whole problem with, you know, our Afghanistan policy. So we're weeks away from being totally out of Afghanistan and months away, everybody seems to think from the collapse of the government in Afghanistan. And what's our policy going to be then? Our policy now seems to be focusing at least morally in the morally practical right place, which is we better get out the people who are allied with us um, and have you know been working with us since we went in in 2001 so they don't all get slaughtered by the Taliban, which then leads our wondrous isolationist friends among the Republicans like like Rand Paul to say, we need to leave them there and not bring them here because, you know, what have we spent all this money for? They're the ones who know how to run things democratically. Like Rand Paul actually, just if people are want to feel sympathetic to Rand Paul because he got beat up by his neighbor and he was good attacking Fauci and all of that. Rand Paul wants to leave 7,500 to 10,000 uh, Afghanis in Afghanistan to be murdered by the Taliban rather than violate his own ludicrous anti-interventionist garbage. And so, I, you know, it's so much, it's I, it, maybe, I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe they thought that, you know, just by bringing everybody home, they'd just be garlanded and laurels would be heaped on them and everybody would be thrilled to be out of this 20 year conflict that we didn't achieve anything anyway. And, and nobody really wants to be there and everybody's excited to get out, even though the polls don't suggest that. But the Biden administration has not been celebrated. And it's not having any opportunity to celebrate. It has been thrust into it's improvising its way through a disaster. What, the, what are they doing? They're talking about what's going to happen to American diplomatic staff when the Taliban reaches Kabul. How are they going to avoid the optical disaster of another fall of Saigon? How are they going to uh, publicly wrestling with whether they're going to execute airstrikes on advancing Taliban positions to save the government if they request that kind of over-the-horizon support? Frantically negotiating with Central Asian governments to preserve our ongoing counterterrorism operations in places like Pakistan, which is a permanent national interest, which will continue whether we're there or not. And like you said, mollifying critics who are saying you're abandoning the Afghans who spent two decades working with Americans. This is a moral disaster. Where is the celebration? Where is the triumph? What did they think they were going to get out of this? And it's only just begun. It's only going to get worse. And they seem to know it. And to and this, the investment in blood and treasure that we've that we've put into this country. Look, over the course of 20 years, it's been about $815 billion. Nothing to sneeze at. But we spend that in a weekend now in Congress. How many people, how many uh, killed in action? Not, not a helicopter crash. How many people were killed in action in Afghanistan in 2020? Less than 10. I mean, that's well, not nothing. Yeah. Every well, life see, lost is a tragedy. The sacrifice must be honored. But how do we honor it? Okay, By I'm abandoning gonna, I'm everything gonna, they worked for for 20 years? Yeah. I'm going to suggest one thing, which is that uh, the uh, Joe Biden's relation to the uh, to the Obama administration is complex. It was very nece- totally necessary to his election as president that he had been Biden's vice president and that he was at his side and he did this and he did that for him and he did the other thing for him. I do think that, as was true, by the way, with George H.W. Bush after Reagan, that there is a kind of, uh, despite their you know weird age differences. Um, they, uh, they, uh, he wants to finish what Obama wasn't able to finish and do things Obama wasn't able to do and fix things. Obama. So he had his preposterous idea about 
dividing Afghanistan. Obama didn't go with it. He didn't want them to surge troops in Afghanistan. Obama surged some troops in Afghanistan. Now he's the one who's going to get us out of there. History will record that he did it. Obama couldn't. Obama wanted to do it, and we didn't do it. And Obama wanted to do this, and he didn't do that. And 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 there is there is a lot of that in in him, is my view. And we'll see where that. You know, we'll see where that goes in in other ways. That's also like, oh, I can be L- I can be FDR. He couldn't be FDR. I can be FDR. That was one of the probably the seductions that led him to his reckless strategy on, you know, on this insane spending spree that he wanted to go on. Um, with that, let's talk about betting sheets, bowl and branch. Okay, high quality sleep doesn't stop at your mattress. Ultra soft organic sheets like the ones you get from Bowl and Branch, transparently sourced, produced in safe air conditions, they will provide you with the difference that you will want for your bedding. Bowl and Branch started with a mission to produce the highest quality sheets on the market and make the world a better place in the process. Today, they're still the best choice for anyone who wants comfort that lasts. Uh, they're comfortable, they're good looking, they're hemmed they're they're beautiful uh buttery soft lightweight with a hundred percent organic cotton sateen weave that's perfect for all seasons comes in a variety of colors and in all sizes from twin up to california king made to a higher standard with toxin-free processes and fair trade certification to ensure workers are paid fair living wages founded in 2014 by husband and wife scott and missy tannen came down to a choice to do what's right and they did it. And the golden rule, partners and customers are at the center of every choice the company makes. Bowl and Branch partners with family-owned businesses that align with the same values and standards. They're pledging to double U.S. Assembly jobs this year. So to experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Bowl and Branch. That's B-O-L-L ampersand branch. You can try them worry-free for 30 nights with free shipping and returns. And commentaries listeners get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. That's bowlandbranch.com, promo code commentary. Guys, um, uh, today marks the, either today or yesterday, I'm sorry, I'm not, I, I'm a little off, marks the 95th birthday of Mel Brooks. Melvin Kaminsky, born... Uh, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in uh, 1926. And um, uh, I am thrilled to have this opportunity to talk a little about Mel Brooks because three, four years ago, uh, determined to write a big piece about Mel Brooks, I went to Las Vegas and saw him perform at the Wynn Hotel. When I say perform, he's 91 years old. He was sitting on a stage at the Wynn with a guy who was just asking him questions, a little like inside the actor's studio or something like that, asked him questions to tell stories. And then Brooks would, in unbelievably spry fashion, get up from his chair and then like tell a story from his life. These stories about working for Sid Caesar on your show shows in the 1950s or working in the Catskill Mountains uh, in the 1940s as a sort of a, as a 13 year old, as a 15 year old comedian, Tumblr comic type, 
uh, making $5,000 a week when he was 22 years old and telling his parents that he made $50 a week because they could never even understand what it meant that he was making $5,000 a week um, living living where he was his mother because his father had, had, had died when he was very young. Um, Mel Brooks is a fascinating type that we will never, that we, that Jews, American Jews will never see again, but that if, if immigrant groups that follow are lucky, uh, and, and I think they are, and I think we see this, we will see again and again from immigrants to the United States, which is a kid born under outsider conditions, um, who has an almost unimaginably interesting comic sense uh, of uh, uh, loving but critical of his own, the culture from which he emerges, and loving but uh, dispassionate eye about the larger American culture that he inhabits and desperately wants to be a part of and a, and a leader of. And um, uh, here's the most interesting thing about Mel Brooks, who was, by the way, the, the most successful comic movie maker of the 1970s and 1980s. People talk about Woody Allen. Woody Allen made movies that made almost no money. In contemporary dollars, Blazing Saddles made close to $600 million domestically. That is superhero movie numbers for Blazing Saddles, for Young Frankenstein, which didn't make as much, for Silent Movie, for High Anxiety. He made wildly successful motion pictures that pretty much incepted this kind of form of long-form parody, right? Blazing Saddles is a parody of a Western. Uh, Young Frankenstein is a sort of shot-for-shot parody of a 1930s, early 1930s horror movie. High Anxiety is a parody of Hitchcock movies. Um, Kind of a remarkable thing that he did because he made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars as as a ribald, not very imaginative in visual terms director and filmmaker and um and what's the key to understanding what you know so but he was this bizarrely literate person um he you know he didn't i mean he sort of barely went to college i mean he went to actually he went to virginia military institute which is pretty interesting uh but um you know he came to new york he was a sort of genius comedy writer uh um and, but he was an autodidact, which he wears very lightly, and he doesn't even really talk about it that much. But there's a moment in in the producers I want to tell you about the his first movie that he wrote that he won an Oscar for the screenplay of, and there is this weird moment in it where uh, Zero Mostel, who plays the crooked producer, and Gene Wilder, who plays the accountant who becomes his partner in crime, go to a brownstone to find this Nazi who has written a play about how wonderful Hitler is musical that they decide they want to produce because they want it to flop and they they knock on the door and this woman opens a window and says what do you want and they say we're looking for i can't remember his name the 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 nazi and and he said and so zero myself says can you tell me where he is madam and she says i'm not your madam i'm the concierge okay which is a line i always loved and i never understood why as a kid 10, 15 years later, I'm reading an obscure novel by Honoré de Balzac called History of the Thirteen. Um, um, so I'm reading along in History of the Thirteen, around page 40, 
a guy goes to a you know a, a a building in Paris, knocks on the door, and a woman opens the door and he says, "I'm looking for so and so, madam," and she says, "I'm not your madam, I'm the concierge." There is no way. Mel Brooks had read History of the Thirteen. Balzac wrote thirty-seven novels uh, in the in the human comedy. This is one of the more obscure ones. He had read this. He had thought this was a funny line. He had taken it for screenplay and just thrown it in there. Now, if Woody Allen had done that, he would have said, I'm not your man, I'm on the concierge. And someone would have said, oh, that's very much like I read something in Balzac. <laughs> as you know, Balzac, Honoré de Balzac. You know, it's like, let me show you that I read things. Let me, you know, let me show off for you. So Brooks was a popularizer who, who his inc- remarkable erudition was kind of left to be, you know, gleaned and understood. And that's also part of the immigrant process, uh, which is that you have people who come in and they're strivers and they're hungry and uh, they want to be a part, get into the red hot center of the United States and, and Western culture. And they, they breathe it in like they breathe in the air because they don't really feel like they're heir to it. And then they make it their own. Uh, he was the, uh, he was pr- probably the funniest person alive in my view. Uh, his movies are often very wooden. Uh, if you ever, if you want to have a fun couple of hours, go on YouTube and look up Mel Brooks's talk show appearances. He was the greatest talk show guest who ever lived Without question, he and the 2,000-year-old man comedy albums, which, uh, you know, uh, are, are the, the greatest comedy albums ever probably ever recorded or the greatest comedy routine ever recorded between him him and, and, and Carl Reiner. But he, he is an emblematic first-generation American from an immigrant background, started out speaking Yiddish. And decided that this country was his country as much as it was everyone else's country. And he was going to take it by storm. And he did. And there he is now. And the great question of our time, maybe this is where I can stop my monologue and we can talk about this a little uh, amongst ourselves, is, is that right being denied to everybody who is coming in now? Because the idea is you shouldn't... Uh, make fun of your own kind, which is sort of what the 2,000-year-old man is. The idea is, what if the a person living through history is just like a, an immigrant Jew from Brooklyn, you know, who, like, knew Jesus Christ uh, and, you know, uh, and he was terrible because <clears throat> Jesus came to him and said, told him he should make a cross, but he was too busy making Jewish stars and, you know, the cross is much cheaper and simpler. You could have made a fortune like that. So, uh, you know, um, what if, you know, so he makes one of his own kind, but he also, it's also loving. And he then just sort of like says, this is my country and I can do whatever I want. Um, I think every aspect of what made him great is being denied to others and will continue to be denied to, to other immigrants included who come here um, in that you cannot make fun of your own kind because identity is too important. You certainly cannot make fun of others, which Mel Brooks also did a lot. And 
you're not supposed to see this country as a, as a, as a land of great opportunity that you want to take by storm. You're not supposed to be grateful for that chance here and you and, and, and to portray it lovingly. Well, that's, and that's, I, I first was introduced to Mel Brooks through the 2000 year old man, which I love. I mean, he had some great line about the, the other thing he did is, is cast the kind of cranky old person persona's eye on anything that was considered progress. So at one point, Carl Reiner asked him like, wasn't it amazing that we did, you know, we figured out how to go to space. He's like, yeah, space. That was interesting. Yeah, that's cute. Space is cute. Like he's so deadpan with, and, and he deliberately, you know, thickened this accent. Um, the idea being it was both foreign and familiar. If you're American, you've heard, you know, this accent. I, I loved it. I, and and I came, you know, I was a, a, a born and raised in Florida as a Christian fundamentalist. This was not my people, but the humor lands because it it's loving in the sense that it it's critical with an eye towards embracing everything we could do better. Whereas I think a lot of com- what, what passes for comedy today is is contemptuous and contempt leeches that ability to sort of embrace flaws and all the way this country works. And that's really, it's a tragedy, truly. I mean, it, it, contempt will destroy that. And I think it, it, identitarianism also destroys that because not only can you not um, make fun of your own, you really can, you're, you're forever imprisoned in your identity now. Uh, if you're born in, you know, if you're born to a, you know, Bangladeshi family and you're a first generation uh, Bangladeshi American who wants to become a comedian, there's expectations for the kind of humor you're supposed to do, right? And and going outside the box is is you're really hemmed in. The other thing, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. With, with, with you know the obsession with identity and identity politics and social justice, um, is that while the emphasis is so much on um, ethnicity and minority ethnicity, the end result in terms of comedy is actually um, sort of de-ethnicizing all of it. It, it's it's a sort of bl- everything gets blanded out because you can't you can't tiptoe into any waters at all. Um, so there's no sort of you know characteristically anything uh, any sort of nationality or ethnicity in in comedy now. It's it's all the comedy now is all based around a kind of wised up sort of hip. Um, snickering at everything well or or uh there's a lot of ethnicity uh but it's victim ethnicity in other words you 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 are uh, an arab american comedian or you're a korean american you're some kind of comedian and the jokes are look what mean things white people do to me rather than i'm from this loving funny crazy weird world you don't know about let me tell you about a little bit and you know what you may come to love it also from the way I talk about it. So, you know, it's like the the single, the opening of the 2,000-year-old man album is, you know, uh, one of the, like, the first jokes is, you know, uh, I have over 42,000 children and not one comes to visit me. So hits you. Take, I mean, I'd love. Yeah, go ahead. I just I would love to say that it's a modern phenomenon, but it, and there is some unique in our the, this period now, the last decade, for example, that has become very hostile towards the idea of satire, which is anathema if you're a very serious person. These are serious times and all that. Um, but it was it. It's not a, a novel instinct. I mean, people talk about a very cliched observation about Mel Brooks is you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today. No one could make Blazing Saddles today. You couldn't make Blazing Saddles then. Um, really, Richard Pryor, 
who incidentally was the person that they wanted to bring on to play the well, who wrote lead it. in that film, um, had a show on NBC for about four episodes um, that was routinely bottlerized and sliced up and then canceled abruptly because of its irreverent, uh, uh, flippant approach toward racial dynamics in this country, which are supposed to be taken very, very, very seriously. And to be so irreverent around this sort of thing, even you know aggressively, he was very hostile in his approach to racial dynamics, but he did so from a very flippant approach, which made them accessible. And that made them less serious. And that was the sort of thing that NBC executives could not accept. Right. So two things about Blazing Saddles. Uh, one, uh, it was written by commentary contributor Andrew Bergman. Uh, uh, and you should go to commentarymagazine.com and look up, or you can go to Google and and Google Andrew Bergman Commentary Magazine. You can read his article, The, the Boys from Laupheim, which is a remarkable memoir of his father and the... Uh, um, and the uh, one of the original uh, creators of Hollywood, Carl Lemley, um, who saved his father and hundreds of other people from this small town in Germany um, from, you know, from the Nazis. It's an amazing piece. And Andrew Bergman, who also wrote The In-Laws, the, maybe the greatest of all screen comic screenplays ever written, um, wrote the original draft of Blazing Saddles. Um, Blaze, and the thing about Mel Brooks is, you know, we think of he's cuddly, he's cute, he's lovable. He's a, you know, he played Yoda and Spaceballs and all of this. The producers and Blazing Saddles are are were shocking, shocking pieces of work. I mean, the the joke in the producers, of course, is that these two Jews find this script by a Nazi that they put on Broadway to be so bad that the show will close in a night and they can collect all of, they can raise 10 times the amount of money that it costs to put it on. No one will look at the books after the the show folds and they can keep the, the overruns. And then there is this, you know, legendary number springtime for Hitler. That was 23 years after the discovery of Auschwitz. And, um, you know, I, I remember I was like 10 years old when I saw it. And, you know, there's a moment in it when you, the as the number starts, when the, they pan to the Broadway audience, and there are three people there who are like the monkeys in the famous illustration, like one with his hands over his ears, one, uh, one with his hands over his mouth, and one with his hands over his eyes. And the idea is this is the most horrible thing that you have ever seen because he had imagined what could be the worst thing that you could ever do. And that was a, a, a a celebration of Hitler. Similarly, what, what was, what could be the funniest thing that you could do if you were making a a Western, right. Would be, you know, a small town, uh, you know, being threatened by, you know, by, by, by a bad guy. And what the bad guy does is send in essentially a, a black person from 1971 into this small town in 1875 in the 1875 wild west and see what and see what happens and it was shocking these were shocking movies they weren't cute and cuddly and nice and lovable they they broke every barrier and that's the funny part is there's a show now on on HBO Max or on, uh, called Hacks just started and it's very interesting. It's about uh, sort of a Joan Rivers type comedian uh, who is in Vegas and kind of like old and tired and her material is old and tired, but she's a legend. And she ends up teaming up with a 25 year old 
woke, bisexual uh, person who made and then destroyed her own reputation on Twitter uh, as a comedy writer and is in desperate need of a job and ends up going to work for her in Vegas. And the whole thing is she walks around saying the the you know doing mildly risque material the old comedian and the young comedian is like you can't say that you can't do that and Gene you know, Smart who plays the older comedian is amazing in the yeah. show yeah, and so by the way is the younger and so Hannah yeah. Einbinder who plays it is is also but this is like the comedy dynamic it's like it's like as if Mel Brooks were walking around being Mel Brooks and there was somebody behind him going you can't sing string time for Hitler. You know that is that that is comedy now, and the whole point is that you know uh, to be a great comic force, you know it, you you have to do things um, that are burrs under the saddle of sort of like pompous conventional opinion, and say you know what everything is funny. Everything don't everything is funny, and that's what Mel Brooks was. Mel Brooks was everything is funny. You know, I'm thirty years old. What do I know best is like old Jews in Williamsburg. They're funny. You know, be funny. Uh, This hack producer I used to know, I I worked for in New York. He wants to produce a flop. What's the worst kind of show you could put on? A pro Hitler musical. That's funny. It's funny because everyone will say you can't do that, and that's what's funny. But that is, you know, you put your finger on it, that that is the essence of satire, an, an earthy level of language, uh, concepts that offend the state, defeat an elite. Um, the sort of th- effective satire is going to piss off all the people you want to impress. Mm-hmm. So if you want to advance, you know, through the traditional you know, ladder of social and economic progression, then you can't do that kind of satire. Um, right. It's very few people ever are successful at it because very few people attempt it. And it's not just satire because there's also parody or satire, whatever, but it does have this quality. That's why I mentioned hacks of um, the leading figures in the, in these worlds, the people who like made the reputations were the people you wanted to be were Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor and, you know, George Carlin and, and Lenny Brute and the people who broke the mold or like, you know, tried to kind of um, take things as far as they could go. And now in comedy itself, there is a weird ideologist class that is saying that comedy that does not advance the social justice interests of our of our time is is bad and wrong. It's wrong. It's like it's not helpful. It's not serving the purpose of, you know, glorious social change it's uh, we've achieved socratically the premise of chapter three chapter three of the new book Uh, but i just want to say there it is heartening though there are a few really great talents who don't conform to the to the to the now prescribed um you know version of social justice comedy and they do well i can't think of many of them but i'm thinking of like dave Chappelle, bill burr yeah. Um, but they also get a lot of flag. They get flack. And then they're, of course, you know, uh, but my, my, my central point is that if you're sort of like 
uh, kind of middling talent. You want to be a performer. Uh, right. Stand-up comedy was a way that people, you know, found a way to break through to be performers and all of that. And so even in this, you know, there are wild gradations of talent and no one, you know, there's, there aren't Mel Brooks's like that's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a sport. He's a genetic freak. Um, but the question is, did you want to be as close to Mel Brooks as you can get while fall, falling way short? Cause you can't be that, you can't be that, uh, you can't be Mel Brooks. Or do you want to be a cowardly sniveling person in a corner who is just trying to make sure that you deliver that like Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel or something, you will deliver lines in your, in your comedy show that give, that people applaud because they like your politics. And that's where the shift has come in the last five years. I think it's probably temporary because you can't, you can't go anywhere with that. In other words, like, I don't know what's going to happen on hacks, which has only had, which I've only seen three episodes of, but, um, the whole point here is that the young comedian, the young person who is sort of our stand-in, right? She's the one who enters the world of this old, tired, hack, you know, dated Vegas comedy. But she's the humorless, tiresome, you know, kvetchy, un, you know, like not very likable Lazy. One. Also lazy. Like yeah. she doesn't yeah. work very hard. That's yeah. another like, <laughs> yeah. but so, she talks constantly about how exhausted and how hard she works. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because of course, you know, so in that sense, it's an incredibly honest portrait of something. Anyway, uh, happy birthday to uh, Mel Brooks, um, who, uh, you know, has in in the course of my lifetime, I would say intermittently here and there, and all this has given me more pleasure as a performer than any other performer who is who has ever lived. And I haven't even talked about the musical, the fact that you know, in his seventies, he wrote you know one of the last great American music. He turned the producers into a, a musical. Uh, that is itself, you know, a, a work of genius, a stage genius. The movie is not very good, which you can see the the mu- movie musical version, but as a but as a stage work, <clears throat> is like transcendent and full of uh, things you can't do today, like making fun of how gay Broadway is and stuff like that, which you could not get away with now. Um. Anyway, so happy birthday to him. Thank you for all the pleasure you've given me and you've given the world and may people use you as an example and not the tiresome young woman from Hacks. And with that, we will talk to you tomorrow for Abe, Noah, and Christine of John Bon Horitz. Keep the candle burning.